Hi, this is Dave Pompkin from the Seton Hall Basketball Radio Network, and you're listening to Left Coast Pirate. Horton will try to go all the way. seconds to go down by two. Here's Whitehead guarded by Ochefu. Gets the step into the lane. Goes to the bucket. Layup. Rolls around and in. And a foul! Whitehead ties the game! Pow! From Trenton! Woo! What Trenton makes the world takes! Coming to you just west of the Ward Place Gate from San Diego, California. He is Mike Dizzy Deziri, class of 2001. I am Tommy Chilkoharski, class of 1997. And we are Left Coast Pirates. Happy New Year, everyone. This is Tom Koharski of the Left Coast Pirates. I just wanted to quickly introduce a special podcast that we recorded earlier. During the season, we're busy doing recaps, previews, and bringing on guests to talk about the current games and events surrounding the program. Normally, we try to fill the off-season with our deep-dive interviews, but sometimes we're able to secure a guest that we'd be crazy to wait on. So today, we're releasing our recent interview with the voice of the Seton Hall Pirates, Gary Cohen. Gary graciously spent some time with us talking about his early career, how he started with both the Mets and the Seton Hall Pirates, his thoughts on this year's team, and much, much more. Mike and I were ecstatic to be joined by Gary, and we hope you enjoyed this interview. He is the play-by-play announcer for New York Mets baseball, but is better known as the voice of Seton Hall men's basketball doing play-by-play on 970 AM. Please welcome to Left Coast Pirates Live, Gary Cohen. Gary, how are you today? I'm doing great, guys. Thanks very much for having me on. No, thanks for coming on, Gary, and and Happy New Year to you and your family. Thanks, and uh, to you too, although, you know, New Year's was a little delayed for you guys, I know, three hours. (laughs) (laughs) I got a couple little ones. We we, we do a pretend uh, East Coast drop at 9 o'clock out here, otherwise we can't get it. That's very, very smart. You know, my wife has the same problem. She falls asleep at 9, I have to wake her at 5 to midnight just to tell her the ball's about to drop, and at 12.01, she goes back to sleep. It's It's a good arrangement. All right, Gary. So for most of our listeners, you are the iconic voice that has covered the Mets for the past 30 years and Seton Hall men's basketball for now almost two decades. However, we obviously know you didn't get your start there. While you were at Columbia, you called baseball, basketball, football, and even soccer. And you also had a rather infamous partner on some of those calls back then. Did you ever think looking back, you would be calling games with the eventual advisor to the president? You know, um, George Stephanopoulos was a couple of years behind me at Columbia. And honestly, he was more of a wrestler than he was um, a radio station guy. Um, So our paths crossed only briefly. And um, he was very, very quiet back then. I never would have thought that he would have done anything that involved uh, public speaking. But, you know, we had fun doing some soccer games together. And uh, it's been fun to follow his career from afar. 
Now, your first few years were spent covering minor league baseball in places like North Carolina and Rhode Island when you finally got the call. The Mets needed someone to fill in alongside Bob Murphy. What was that experience like being asked to go to work with a voice you grew up listening to as a kid? Well, I was I was extraordinarily fortunate in that, you know, my minor league stay was not all that long. I mean, I, I, I know guys who've been doing minor league baseball for two, three decades, and they do it because they love it. But I can't imagine that I would have stuck it out for that long uh, in the minor leagues. And to get the big league call after such a short period of time and to get it from the team that I grew up you know, watching virtually every day from the time I was six years old was pretty cool and then to share a booth with a guy I used to fall asleep with the radio under my pillow from the time I was a little kid um it I had to pinch myself every day for basically for 15 years as long as Murph and I worked together just because every day was just a shock to me that that I was actually doing what I was doing well in the fall of 1988 you seem to have your choice of jobs in in really kind of disparate locations you interviewed with the montreal expos the san diego padres and the new york mets now now gary i'm gonna ask this as a longtime california resident now how did you choose flushing over san diego well, I have to admit, I did give San Diego some very serious consideration. Um, actually, the way it transpired, the, the Montreal offer came first, and then the San Diego offer, and then I was waiting on the Mets, and I, 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 I told Montreal no, and I was holding out the San Diego offer, waiting to see what was going to happen, and if the Mets had waited maybe one or two, two more days, I wouldn't have had a choice. I would have taken the San Diego gig, which would have been very cool. I mean, you know, uh, living in San Diego and in, in that weather, but, you know, ultimately the, the, the chance to work at home and in the team I grew up with and in the ballpark I grew up with uh, that, that, that overwhelmed every other consideration. Okay. So, so after working your first 17 years for the Mets in radio broadcasting, you spent the last 13 in, in the television booth alongside Keith Hernandez and Ron Darling predominantly. What's the contrast between those two formats? Well, it's, you know, it was fortunate for me because I, I had always been a radio guy, tried and true through and through. I, I had no intention of ever going to television. Uh, although there had been certainly plenty of opportunities to do so along the way. I, I was a radio chauvinist. I, I think like a radio person, even these days, I, I still have to think in radio and translate it into TV. But, you know, the fact that the Mets were starting their own network and obviously I, I knew the, uh, I knew the material. Um, it, it seemed like if I was ever going to do that, I, it was time to, and I had five kids who were heading for college so that was a that was a consideration too because tv does pay more than radio um so it's different it's i mean again the the, the material is the same it's it's mostly for me a matter of um dressing better and talking less and and working with others in a way that that radio doesn't demand and you know you're you're on, on radio you're you're the whole show and on, on tv you're a a, a small spoke and a large wheel on, on radio, you're the wheel. So, so it took a little adjusting, but it, it helped that I had the world's greatest partners and the, the greatest baseball director of all time. And Bill Webb who passed away a couple of years ago 
but was with us for the first 10 or so years and um, and a great producer and great picker. So we have had basically the same group intact for uh, going on, going on 15 years on SNY. And um, it's, it's been a great ride. It really has. Can I ask a question? How, how do you actually keep someone like Keith Hernandez, you know, in line throughout a broadcast? feels like sometimes you got to reel Keith in once in a while. Well, that is part of my, my, my job description. <laughs> um, Keith has a, a, a great way of, of walking the tightrope and every once in a while he'll teeter and it's my job to, to prop him up and make sure he doesn't, doesn't fall into the net or beyond. <laughs> but, but it definitely is a, a thrill every day because you just never know where Keith's mind is going to go. And uh, I think we're all the better for that. Well, you've got a reputation for being one of the most prepared play-by-play guys in the business. How much preparation time goes into each one of your broadcasts, whether it's with the Mets or with the Pirates? Well, baseball is completely different. So let me let me put the put the basketball aside for just a moment. You know, the nature of baseball with a game every day for six months, basically 500 hours of programming. Um, you have three, three and a half hour games with seven or eight minutes of action. This is a lot of time to fill, which means that you have a lot of time to make a complete fool of yourself if you don't know what you're talking about. I always say that my preparation began when I was six because, you know, on any given day, something might come up in the broadcast that refers to something that happened yesterday or last week or last year, or 10 years ago, or 50 years ago. And all of that is part of the, the, the preparation for that day's game. Now, that having been said, everything in baseball changes every day because you have 15 games being played on a daily basis. So my job every day is to know everything that has transpired the day before and add that to the accumulation of, of trivialities that, that circle through my brain so that we can grab at them whenever necessary. And the other thing is, and what's changed since I started is that, you know, a lot of the job in the past was about calling people on the phone, talking to people, see what's going on in different places. Cause you didn't have access to as much information as you do now. Now, part of the problem is that there's too much information out there. But the other piece of that is that not only is it available to someone like me, but it's also available to everybody else. So my goal is to stay at least a couple of pages ahead of, of the people watching the game so that, you know, so that I can bring something to them that they wouldn't get otherwise. You said you wanted to put the Seton Hall concept of preparation on the side for a second. Is it much different basketball relative to baseball? Uh, it's completely different. I mean, again, you know, baseball has these gaping spaces that you have to fill with intelligent conversation. And and it's I'm on television, so I'm not providing you know word picture descriptions. I'm, I'm more providing captions in terms of the actual play by play. Basketball, two hour game on the radio, almost no downtime within the game. Uh, it requires far less preparation and far more just letting your brain uh, spill out onto the into the microphone. You know, you have a small number of players. You have uh, easy identification because you're sitting six inches away. It's a big ball. It's a small court. It's really difficult to screw it up. So you don't really need a lot of extraneous stuff. I mean, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll spend a couple of hours at least preparing for each game. But it's just 
it's just not the same level of depth necessary that that you have to bring to the table in baseball well to the chagrin of my father i did not grow up a mets fan i'm, I'm a yankee fan but i remember your voice distinctly from calling college basketball games for wfan and, and st john's I, I don't admit this too often on the podcast but i was a huge fan of louis carnesecca and malik Sealy back in the day you've actually called games now for three different biggies programs in providence st john's and now seton hall what's it been like to cover all three different programs that were original flagship members of the Big East. Yeah, and I, I would say this. I think I'm the only person who who has that distinction of having been the primary voice for for three different Big East schools. You know, I got to Providence by kind of by accident because I was doing AAA games in Pawtucket, and I actually started at Providence doing their hockey games the year before I did the basketball. So I kind of snuck in through the back door. Eric Reed was the longtime voice for Providence, and he left to go to the Miami Heat, which uh, left an opening. And, and since I was there doing the hockey games, that, that's kind of how I, how I found my way in there. John Marinato was the, the athletic director there. And I, my, my only year doing Providence basketball was Rick Barnes' first year there, which was kind of cool. Oh, wow. just, I had no doubt that he was going to go on to be as successful as he's become over the course of his career. When I left Providence and, and, and Pawtucket and, and went to New York, it kind of left me without a college basketball gig. This is really weird. I picked up some work when back when Host Communications was doing the NCAA tournament. They, they had the national network before Westwood One came along. And Host Communications hired me to be a color man on NCAA tournament games. I... <laughs> which made no sense since I was, you know, obviously not a college basketball expert by any means and was not qualified to be a color man. But I did that for a couple of years before I, I graduated into their, their, their play-by-play rotation. And the, the St. John's thing, uh, again, happened quite by accident. It was actually after baseball went through their strike here in 94, 95, and I suddenly found myself out of a job, and I realized that I, I might want to find a, a way to, you know, make a living in some other fashion other than just the baseball Need and WFAN happened to, yeah, exactly. So at WFAN happened to be doing the St. John's games at the time. And that's how that came about. And what was great about that is that I, for the last, I guess it was the last three years that I did the games there. I got to work with Eddie Coleman Eddie was my, my color man. He was just fantastic to work with. I, let's see. I, I had Brian Mahoney's last year as coach there before he got fired. Then I had Fran Fraschella's two years. That was superb. Fran is a friend to this day. He's just just a, a wonderful savant. And then I had Mike Jarvis's first four years there, which included a, a run to the uh, the Elite Eight. So, so we had seven good years doing St. John's basketball. But then they changed radio stations, and the new radio station wanted somebody who wasn't affiliated with WFAN. So that came to an end. And Keith Myers, who was then the associate AD at Seton Hall, reached out. That's how I wound up doing the Pirates. And they have been so good to me over the last couple of decades. It's been just great. Everything about doing the Seton Hall games gives me joy, which is which is why I'm still doing it. So, Gary, you kind of beat me to my next question. That 1998-99 team for St. John's that went on to the Elite Eight, was that the best team or most talented team that you've covered throughout your years in college? Oh, gosh, basketball? no. Oh, not not even close. They completely outperformed what anybody would have expected. They were a bunch of scrappers. I mean, obviously they had a great talent in Ron Artest, you know, and Eric Barkley was um, was a talented point guard 
although clearly made a mistake leaving school as early as he did. But they were just a bunch of tough guys who, who somehow found a way. That team had LeVar Postel and, and Bootsy Thornton also. I mean, I remember that team very yeah. well. But, but but those are not they, those were not star players. I mean, the the Seton Hall team that we are watching right now is a more talented team than that St. John's team that went to the Elite Eight. It's not even close. Well, did a recent generation of fans, you and Dave Popkin, are the voices for the Pirates. But when you first got the job, you were taking over for another legendary Pirates voice in Warner Fusell. Was it difficult to take over for someone who was so synonymous with Seton Hall basketball and make it your own? Well, the only thing that was difficult for me is that I considered Warner a friend, and I felt terrible about the fact that he was being replaced. You know, it's not like I stepped in and 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 muscled him out of the job. They had made the decision to make a change, and 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 I, I was available. And and I felt terrible about it because I loved Warner. Warner was a great, quirky, fun, committed voice of not only Seton Hall, but obviously this week in baseball as well. He was just a one of a kind broadcaster who was a, a fantastic listen. And um, I used to listen to him doing the Pirates games all the time. So that in that aspect, it was difficult because I, I felt terrible about Warner losing the gig. But as far as uh, from that point, it, you know, it, I had done enough college basketball and it was mo- mostly about, you know, learning some of Seton Hall's traditions and, and some of the, some of the history. And, and from that point on, you know, Dave and I have, uh, have had a great partnership in terms of bringing the pirate games to, to the folks listening. And, um, we've, we've just had a ball, you know, we got to work with Lewis Orr for a few years, tremendous gentleman. We had a very, very stark change in culture when Bobby Gonzalez came in. <laughs> <laughs> and um, the last 10 years under Kevin Woolard, I, I have never worked with any coach or manager who has been as accommodating and as easy to work with as Kevin has been. So that's that's been terrific, too. That's really some measured words talking about Gonzo there, Jerry. <laughs> well, you know, Bobby had his he had his he had his assets. He 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 was a tough street kid. He brought some very talented players to the program, some of whom, you know, didn't necessarily belong in in the Seton Hall culture, and some of whom did. They probably won a few more games than they would have with somebody else coaching them because Bobby um, could get guys to play hard. But, you know, at the end of the day, he was uh, self-destructive enough that, that it cost him his gig. Well, this kind of leads me into our next question. I mean, sometimes there's going to be some potentially – difficult situations that you might have to face when, when asking coach a question. And we covered this with Dave when he was on the podcast over the summer. And it was one of our more of our interesting segments that we shared with him at the time. And it was, how do you handle the interaction with coach Willard in the post game after a loss? You've been known for your candor over the years. I mean, do you tailor your approach in those specific situations? Well, I think you have to be sensitive in the, you know, immediate aftermath of a tough loss that you can't you know be Mike Wallace you know asking <laughs> questions that are going to going to get somebody peeved at you but there are ways of of asking questions and ways of getting people to talk in those situations that are gentle and you can always get to the the harder question you know three or four questions in rather than right off the bat you know, asking, well, why'd you screw that up at the end of the game? You know what I mean? It, oh, yeah. there, there's, a, there's a certain art 
to to reading the room and 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 asking questions in a way where you get the answers that you're looking for without you know completely losing your 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 subject. We're still trying to learn how to do that. Sorry, Gary. If if we get Kevin on the show, I don't know if I can control myself. I'm just going to be honest. <laughs> I find Kevin extremely easy to deal with. So you you could have uh, you could have a more challenging situation like you know say having bobby gonzalez on after a lot i bet so through the 17 years that you've covered the pirates there's not been a whole lot of success in the uh, ncaa tournament itself but the program has had its memorable moments along the way which of those stand out to you as those big moments well number one is definitely the big east tournament in 2016 I mean, that was the culmination of, of so much heartache that this program had, had suffered through, both in the uh, the Bobby Gonzalez years and then, you know, all the things that, that seemed to, to go sour in, in Kevin Willard's tenure, starting with Herb Pope dying in a stairwell three weeks into his job and then being revived. There were so many things that, that led up to that championship not the least of which isaiah whitehead buying into the program and bringing desi rodriguez along and that that whole class um that when that happened especially the the basket that whitehead made that hung on the rim for 35 minutes um <laughs> that, that eventually uh, won the game for them i i i just i had a feeling that night unlike any that i've ever had in any other college basketball environment it was um it was so special for the program for those kids for kevin um and he, and for dave and me too because you know we'd been doing it for for over a decade at that point and there had been so many disappointments that 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 moment really that 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 meant a lot now you know beating nc state and finally getting an ncaa tournament win that was great too um in fact uh, it was the first NCAA tournament win since Dave and my first year. We got to do the uh, the, the win over Arizona in 2004, um, which was spectacular in its own right. So those are the obvious high points. But you know, to me, it's also it's seeing individual players get better. Guys like Brian Lang and and Buquan Edwin and and Jeremy Hazel and watching Paul Gauze <laughs> just play at, at a at a a tempo that that nobody else could match in terms of his intensity. So there's been a lot of that. And, you know, now we're getting to watch one of the greatest players in the history of the program. I mean, you couldn't right now put Miles Powell on Mount Rushmore. I'm not sure who the other three are. Walter Dukes is probably up there. And then you'd have to probably have some severe arguments about who the other two are, but, but Miles is there. And by the time this year is over, he is going to um, accomplish things that, that, even if he doesn't catch Terry DeHair's scoring record, he will accomplish things that nobody else has. Um, just the way that he played against Michigan State after the ankle injury and then the way he played the other night against DePaul after the concussion. I mean, the kid is hes a spectacular kid off the floor, but what he's able to do on the floor is um, is phenomenal in a way that, that I think we've seen from very, very few other players over the course of this program's history. Well, I, I think I could speak for many other fans that we're all looking for many exciting moments to come throughout the rest of this year. And we also asked Dave that question 
about what his excitement level was for the upcoming season. And his response was pretty simple on a scale of one to 10, about 11 and a half. However, <laughs> yeah. the, the team has had to deal with some, you know, a lot of adversity. They've dealt with the injuries to Powell and Sandro. They've had a couple tough losses to boot. Do you feel the eight and four out of conference record has kind of reset those expectations and tempered some of the excitement? Well, I think what it's done is it's taken away a lot of the hype from outside the program. You know, going into the season, I think some of the national hype was a little bit over the top for a program that, you know, hasn't been to the second weekend of the tournament in, in almost 20 years. So I think in some ways this might work to their benefit. And Kevin even addressed this um, the other night after the DePaul game. You know, they're kind of lying in the weeds now. But what they were able to accomplish in beating Maryland without Powell and without Sandro was a it was like a light switch going off of this team of what they are capable of doing. You know, I don't know how much longer Sandro is going to be out, but when they get him back, they are going to be an incredible powerhouse. Now, all that having been said, the Big East is so good this year, you could still go 500 in the league. Um, even if you play phenomenally well. And that's why you know winning on the road at DePaul to start the league season was so important. Any road win is going to be huge money in the bank this year. I mean, the, the league is ridiculous. I mean, you got nine teams getting votes right now in the AP poll, and the one that isn't just built a 30-point lead the other night against Georgetown, Providence. So, you know, it's um, I think there are tremendous – there's a tremendous upside to what this program can accomplish this year. They are developing players at the same time that they have seniors who are playing at an incredibly high level. So I think Kevin has been a great February coach. And if he can turn that into some March magic, um, who knows? The sky's the limit with this team. So you brought up the wins against Maryland and, more importantly, the road win against a surprisingly good DePaul team in the Big East opener. Now, you said Kevin's a really good February coach and hopefully it gets into March, but there's one thing that always seems to cause alarm for Seton Hall fans, and that's, and that's the January swoon. Do you think the ship is back on course, or should we wait for another one of those Seton Hall slides? Yeah, I don't know. I Again, I think every game in the Big East is going to be so difficult this year that it's inevitable that at some point you're going to lose a couple in a row. I don't think anybody's going, you know, 14 and four in this league. And, and they've got four of their first six league games on the road. So that's not particularly helpful either. And they're still playing without one of their two best players. And that's going to be the case for, for a little while longer. So, yeah, I mean, it's perfectly possible that, that that could happen again, but you could also look at it this way. They've already had their swoon, and it came in December, and it, it was caused by injuries. So, I don't know. Uh, I, I think that's why you have to watch the games. There, As I said, there are a lot of really good teams in this league. You know, I watched Butler the other night. They are really, really good. Villanova is still Villanova. Uh, Creighton is an incredible offensive force and probably has the best backcourt in the league. You know, Georgetown's been stung, but when McClung is healthy, they still can score 90 points a game. There's just, there's no, there's no weak spots. And, you know, it's why it's one of the reasons why this is going to be such a, a fun season to watch on a night in night out basis. Well, look, let's look a little further down the schedule then. Assuming Sandro comes back from the broken wrist prior to February 8th, 
Is this the year that the Pirates actually break that losing streak at Villanova? Yeah, I would never predict that. I've never seen them win at Villanova. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry. There's college graduates kinda, who haven't seen them win at Villanova. You, yeah, you know, it's it's like it's it's like um, it's be, like before Johan Santana threw the no hitter. I was firmly convinced that it would never happen that the Mets would never throw a no-hitter. And until David Freeze struck out, until the third strike, I was firmly convinced <laughs> that it wasn't going to happen. So this, maybe this is one of those things. You, you, you can't ever predict that it's going to end until it ends. And hopefully this will be the year that that happens. Well, I mean, let's assume that these injuries actually have painted like a silver lining. A lot of people keep on saying that it's opening doors for other players to play additional minutes. And, you know, I, I truly believe that the team might get stronger as the season goes along based on that experience. From your observations to date, which role players have shown that they can make those major contributions? Well, I think Tyree Samuel has gotten the, the benefit of, you know, extra playing time that he might not have gotten otherwise since Sandra has been out. And uh, I, I don't think you have to be a basketball expert to watch Tyrese and realize how good he's going to be. I mean, if he sticks around, for four years at Seton Hall, he's going to have a tremendous career. He's always already got such a, a feel for the game as as a freshman. I, I I don't know how closely you watched the the game against DePaul, but that the play where he had the the ball in the right corner and he, he shot faked and moved to his left and 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 took the shot with just complete and utter calm. The kid's going to be really really good. So that has certainly benefited Seton Hall. And when pa Powell was out. The, the two games where Anthony Nelson got to play significant minutes running the point, I, I think we got a better idea of just what he's capable of. So there's a lot to, to like about what's going forward with this team with some of the younger players. But to me, the guy who is going to be the biggest difference maker from now until the end of the season, if he can be as consistent as Kevin wants him to be, and unfortunately – this is the last year we get with him, is Romaro Gill. I mean, this guy is a, a, a shot blocker, a, a rim protector, like Seton Hall hasn't had since since Sam, Sam Dallum there. And he, he hasn't been consistent. He hasn't been able to put together long stretches the way he did in the second half against the Paul the other night, but he is perfectly capable of it. The guy is so long, and there is no – there's no shot in the lane that he cannot block. So he's a guy that teams have to game plan for. He certainly provides a great level of resistance. He allows the guards to be more aggressive on the perimeter. It's um, it's going to be very interesting to see if Roe can, can keep this up because if he does, then, then Seton Hall is a, you know, is an incrementally better team. Well, Gary, you mentioned a couple of questions back that you thought Seton Hall might have been a little overhyped in the preseason. And I think that's because a lot of people were reading who they were bringing back and who they were adding in Ike Obiago. So everything that you just described that Gil is now bringing to the table and how he can get better at that, I think people just assumed they were going to get that in Ike and they just they haven't seen that so far. Well, you know, we saw it in stretches with Roe last year, and then he got hurt. You know, he missed nine games with an ankle injury, and, and that really set the Pirates back. You talk about January swoon, and that really coincided with when Gil got hurt last year because he was just coming into his own. And I think people sort of forgot about that. You know, Obiago put up very nice numbers for Florida State in the limited playing time that he had a couple of years ago, but it's always hard for players coming back from that sit-out year to hit their stride 
and sometimes it takes them a little deeper into the season. And I think you'll you'll see plenty out of Ike. And the fact that they have both these guys is, you know, it's the only again, it's the only year they're going to have them both. But it's a tremendous luxury, and there's no question that Ike has a lot of upside to his game that we haven't seen yet. Now, although role players play an important factor in this team's success, obviously we have a transcendent talent in All-American candidate Miles Powell. Now, you waxed poetic about him previously, and if it was anybody else, Gary, I would have called blasphemy for putting Miles that high when Terry DeHair is still breathing. But how do you think he compares with guys like DeHare and others who have had postseason success? What what gets him there? Well, I think he's a more versatile player. I mean, I love Terry DeHare. He was a fantastic scorer. But I I have to be honest, I, I saw Terry play maybe five or ten full games over the course of his career. I wasn't, you know, a Seton Hall broadcaster at the time, so I only saw him as a, you know, as an outside observer. But I have seen Miles Powell do things on a basketball court that I'm not sure that 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 Terry could, and and also to will himself to do things in in situations where he should have been physically incapable. So you know, and it's not a knock on Terry DeHair. He is still the, the greatest scorer Seton Hall has ever had, and probably will remain that. But uh, Miles Powell is just, as you use the word transcendent, I, I think that's, that's a good word. All right, Gary. So this team was predicted in the preseason to, to win the Big East regular season championship. Do you think that that ceiling has changed or is it still the same goal and ability for this team to reach that ceiling? Well, I, th- I think they certainly have the ability. I think that the league is a lot better than any of us could have anticipated. I think a lot of folks thought that Butler and, and St. John's and, Creighton weren't going to be nearly as good as DePaul. I mean, so many teams have outperformed what the preseason expectations for them were. And I think the only team that you probably can't say that about is Providence. And then they put a huge hurt on Georgetown the other night. You know, Georgetown's a situation in and of themselves because they've lost four players and they just had their, you know, their 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 go-to guy miss a game the other night, which is part of why they got blown out. But so if you put those two teams aside, I think everybody in the league is is playing at least at as high a, a level and maybe even greater than you could have anticipated when the year began. So is is Seton Hall capable of of winning the Big East? Absolutely. But are six or seven other teams also capable of winning the league? Yeah. So uh, I think the task is maybe more difficult than we thought when the year began, but that's not because Seton Hall is not capable. That's more because there's more competition. But you have to, again, you have to go back to the fact that they're going to play roughly half the Big East Conference season without their second-best player. And, you know, that that certainly puts a crimp in their ability to to win the the regular season. It might give them a better chance, though, of, of winning the tournament. For the record, Tom, Gary Cohen said that Sandrew Mamukelishvili was Seton Hall's second best player. Just just mark it down. <laughs> Mike Mike who, just who loves else, himself who else, Sandro. Who else would who else would you put in that in that category? Previous to the start of the season, there's an argument for Miles Kale being the uh, being the second best player. He obviously has regressed a little bit so far this season, minus the DePaul game. But Mike likes to tweak me about this. Fair enough. I think I think I would have I would have been in the same camp with you that Miles Kale should have been in the conversation 
but I don't think it's much of a conversation right now. But it's up to Miles to change that, and he's certainly capable of that. So getting back on track, since Mike derailed us a little bit, uh, this year marks your 17th season on the call. How much longer do you see yourself calling Pirate Games? As long as they'll have me. This is my fun season. You have to understand, I, I do the Mets games, and I love it, but it is a grind. It's a marathon. It it wears me down. It's, it's, it's a hard season doing 150-odd baseball games over the course of six months. This is my fun season. I, I do this because it's a joy. I love college basketball. Um, I love, you know, the two games a week. I love doing radio, which I don't get to do otherwise uh, for most of the year. Um, I love working with Dave. I love the people at Seton Hall. It's a, it's very much a labor of love, and I will do it as long as I'm physically capable and as long as they have me. Well, before we let our guests leave the program, Gary, we make them walk the plank. We ask five rapid-fire questions, and we're looking for five rapid-fire answers. Are you ready? Go. All right. Question number one. Best moment you've ever called any sport? Uh, Bartolo Colon's home run. Best college basketball player you've ever seen while calling a game? Allen Iverson. Most enjoyable venue you've called a game at? Oh, the Palestra. Opportunity to work side-by-side side with any other broadcaster of all time besides your current partners, who would it be? Vin Scully. You have gotten to call the World Series and Olympic hockey. What would be the number one event left on the bucket list to call? Kentucky Derby. Bonus question. What is your personal favorite catchphrase when calling a game? I don't have one. <laughs> Congratulations, Gary. You've walked the plank. <laughs> Thank you. So, so, so I got I got I, I got a follow-up question for the bonus there. So you are known for some of your catchphrases. How how did they come about? Did they just kind of stumble into them and they just worked, or is this something that you kind of had to put time into before you got to the air? When I was in the minor leagues, I used to try and find a home run call. And I came up with all sorts of hokey, horrible, not ready for prime time stuff that when I got to the major leagues, I decided I'm not doing any of it. So I just decided to call things the way I saw them. And in the course of doing that, you, you find stuff organically. I mean, you know, I'm known for it's out of here. Well, that's not an original call. Lots of other people have used it over the years. Harry Callis used it forever. Dwayne Kuyper uses it. But, you know, it's it's not the words. It's the inflection or whatever it is. And, and it became something that I that I use just in the, because I used it. You know what I mean? It's not because I was trying to find something. Um, and I think that's the only way that any of those things work is if they develop organically. It's, I, like, I love the way you call a three-pointer for Seton Hall. Like you said, it's, it's just the word good, but it's the way you throw out that inflection that just kind of resonates with the audience. Yeah, I didn't invent the word good. I can promise you that. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Gary, we can't thank you enough for joining us here. It's been an honor and a pleasure on this side. Tom, Mike, thanks very much. Enjoy the weather because it's a lot better there than it is here.
<laughs> Happy New Year again, Gary. Gary Cohen, right. everybody. Thank you. So if you've enjoyed this podcast, please listen to our previous podcasts, which include interviews with former players Mark Bryant, Marcus Tony L, Lavelle Sanders, Jerry Walker, and Shaheen Holloway. For Tommy Chilkaharski, I am Mike Dizzy Diziri, and you've been listening to Left Coast Pirates. Thank <laughs> you.